What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what makes their businesses tick? Today, I'm talking to Ben Halpern, the founder of Dev2. Ben, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Cortland. Dev2 is an online community for programmers where programmers can go to swap ideas and help each other grow. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, I think that describes it. Um, We act sort of as a social network, a professional network for software developers, but the way coders really want to get together and interact really is about their craft, their ideas and stuff like that. So we really just try to be there for for the humans behind the scenes. And as you know, I also run an online community for ND hackers, for basically developers who want to learn how to start companies. So this is super fun for me to be able to have you on the show and really just pick your brain about everything you're doing related to your community. But first, let's talk about some of the basics behind Dev2. How long have you been working on this and who are you working with? Yeah, so it's kind of amazing how long it's been at this point. It's Since I started working on this project in any capacity, it's been uh, about four years But we've been working on it sort of as a true earnest business for about a year and a half. And there was probably another year squeaked in there when I was taking it quite a bit more seriously. So about two and a half years since I really started thinking it could be a really cool, great thing. And about a year and a half since we sort of officially thought of it as a real, like, this is our company, our startup, our business. This is an actual business. What are some of the ways you measure your progress at this point? Are you tracking how many members you have for your community, how many page views you're getting, how much revenue you're generating? Yeah, so I think we track a lot of the same stuff any other sort of internet entity has in terms of um, expected daily users, daily or sort of, you know, uh, metrics as they grow and stuff like that. But I don't think we're from a business strategy perspective, the most metric driven company in the world. If we can cause a lot of really great anecdotal stories, a lot of success, just have an idea that the mechanics are really working for people, I wouldn't say that we are this sort of organization that uh, you know drives too hard on on numbers and stuff. But we um, we do sort of track everything. So happy to chat about all that stuff. Yeah, what are some of those those metrics that you track? Just to give listeners some context as to where Dev Two is and its its growth. Yeah, so uh, in terms of registered users, we have uh, nearing, depending on when this podcast comes out, uh, maybe nearing about 100,000 registered developers on the platform. And we're currently going to get about 1.5 million sort of unique visitors to the site. And uh, those numbers are kind of like pretty far off because uh, you can use the website as a lurker, like as an information sort of seeker just on your own. So um a subset of folks have really joined and become part of the community. And then a much bigger selection of software developers are using it in some capacity to get their job done to kind of keep up with the scene and stuff like that. That's huge. And a year and a half, really, of taking this seriously with your co-founders. Is that 1.5 million uniques total or yearly or monthly? Per month. Cool. Yeah, yeah that's humongous. Congratulations. Yeah. And uh, it's really been picking up uh, like crazy lately. Um just, I think, at the start of the spring, it was less than half of that. Or not the start of this, even like the end of the spring, like just a few months ago. Uh, we've been really tracking about 15 to 20% growth in that 
area for several months in a row now. And we've really started to grow on top of ourselves, you know, like that really hit that inflection point, which is is really, really incredibly fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. We're definitely going to dive in to exactly what went into that growth spurt. I talked to Ryan Hoover recently, the creator of another online community called Product Hunt. And I asked him, what are your favorite parts of running an online community and what are your least favorite parts? So let me ask you the same thing, Ben. What do you like most about running an online community and what do you like the least? My favorite and least favorite things about the process and the whole community thing, and I think you can probably relate to some of this, is the uh, the two sides of the coin in terms of like magical collaboration and then just trying to keep things healthy, keep toxicity out of the community, yeah, encourage healthy debates while discouraging pedantic arguments, things like that. And this is really our, you know, really our highest level of focus on anything is just can we keep people in the mindset of encouraging one another instead of tearing each other down. That's kind of the whole point of the business was to uh, improve on what seemed like a not the best we could do as, as humans who write code. So the, the best part is the magic that comes out of our efforts. And the worst part is kind of the day-to-day grind or any sort of times we let the wrong kind of conversations happen. Like we really just need to let things flow naturally. We can't really tell people what to do, but we can really do everything we can to avoid toxic behavior, harassment, anything that's unbecoming of our community. And the two sides of that coin are the best part of the whole job and the worst part. And the uh, anytime we get feedback, like people are really amazed and appreciative of how hard we work about on this stuff. The uh, that's really like the the best days is anytime we get that kind of feedback. So one of the most challenging parts running any sort of online community is just getting it started. It's hard to bootstrap a community from scratch because the entire value of a community, what gets people to join are the other people. And at the beginning, there are no other people. How did you get around this problem and start the Dev2 community? Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of the success is having been in these kind of spaces, the like two-sided marketplace idea uh, on several previous occasions in my professional career before this and recognizing how difficult that chicken egg problem is. And so in recognizing that this was something I kind of wanted to pursue, I really started uh, with the basics and I took a long time before even attempting to sort of fill that second side of the, uh, of the equation. So a community like this needs people to on both sides of the conversation. So Early on, it was all about that one side of the conversation. It was really much, much more of a broadcast with the idea that eventually, hopefully, it would be kind of important enough that uh, more people would want to take part in different ways and play different roles and stuff like that. But not trying to be a a true kind of network or community off the bat was really like the only way I thought that this could ever conceivably work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to just get one side of the equation taken care of and sort of running on its own, and then worry about the other part and not try to go for the gold from day one. What was the first part of your community that you worked on? Yeah, so the whole thing started with, and I mean, it's it's hard to even say that this, what we are now, was necessarily ultimately the goal. Um, it started out as really an experiment in the software development space. I knew I wanted to sort of um, 
grow something of value to the software community. It was unclear what that was going to be at the start, but I started by just registering this Twitter account called The Practical Dev, which really was me and my mindset at the time, really wanted to wanting to offer some practical software advice. I thought there was a lot of uh, people getting on stage and shouting about really impractical sort of solutions to software. And at the time, I that was the approach I wanted to take. I wanted to take a more down-to-earth, meaningful approach to talking about code and my day-to-day life and stuff like that. And it started off as just me sharing useful links I found on the internet. And it, uh, it went through a few phases after that. Yeah, I mean, the Practical Dev Twitter account, for those who don't follow it, is humongous. I think today, what are you up to? Something like 150,000 followers so this wasn't just like a tiny effort. This is something you put a lot of work into. How do you grow a Twitter account to be that huge? Yeah. So first of all, I really, I've done this sort of thing in the past. I'd had a few other sort of online Twitter account turned into uh, businesses. It's kind of a pattern I, uh, I'd done a little bit actually in college when Twitter was kind of new. And the... Businesses kind of eventually fell flat, not because they didn't really grow, is because I kind of uh, thought I had to grow faster than I was. So I took too many big, big, made too many big changes and kind of let things spiral. And then I ultimately sort of didn't do it the right way. And I had the realization, um, you know, about four years ago that, damn, these things I was doing before, there's like no, there's no reason this wouldn't still work. Like nothing in the environment has changed. The platforms haven't changed. People's behavior haven't changed. I just need to not give up on the project and I need to take my time. So I told myself I had 10 years to kind of make this work and it was just going to be a side thing. And maybe in 10 years, if it wasn't working, I'd, I'd quit, but I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't quit at any point in between then and 10 years. I just kind of made that deal with myself. And since I was in the software space and really just doing whatever I wanted to be doing. Uh, I knew I wouldn't get bored of it. I wasn't, I didn't think in 10 years I wouldn't want to be in the code space anymore. So really taking my time early on was kind of the key, but then also in taking my time, I really didn't actually put a ton of effort into it right away. I really just uh, posted links I found on the web every once in a while but with enough of a regularity that it would grow sort of occasionally. So it was really a whole year of just kind of of being a sort of useful Twitter account before I even really started giving it any of my like conscious mind. Um, for about a year, it was just me like once a day scrounging around the internet, Hacker News, Reddit, stuff like that for like what I thought was the most interesting stuff and just scheduling a few posts to go out. And that was about it. And it was a uh, very mindless, uh, uninteresting, but uh, kind of useful, and it kind of grew from there. And eventually, ten years—I was going to yeah. say ten years—is a long time to give yourself to work on something. I mean, that's an incredible amount of patience. Most people want to be successful right now, today. You know, if not today, next week. You know, at the at the most, maybe a year or two from now. And it strikes me that you know, setting a bar for yourself that you're going to work on something for ten years is the kind of patience that comes as a result of these past mistakes where you'd made, where you'd, you'd sort of rush into things and not really giving yourself enough time. What is the story of one of those past mistakes, one of those past businesses or endeavors that you went through and some of the lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, so my first like real foray into the magic, I think, of entrepreneurialism that can kind of grow beyond yourself. I've always been 
you know, I'd gotten into some freelance stuff. I've never been one to really hold down a full-time job, even sort of through high school and college. I, I did some freelance stuff. But then I got into, you know, kind of like a real company kind of mindset just on my own in college, uh, just having realized entrepreneurialism is a thing that can, you can do on the internet without having to go into the office. I think the same kind of realization a lot of people listening to this went through. And so in college, I started a, a sports nutrition website, not too dissimilar from what Dev2 is now in a way. It was started as kind of a, a just a platform where people could kind of write and stuff. And it was, uh, it was just hosted on WordPress. It was not the most technically amazing thing in the world, but it was just a place that was growing and interesting. And I constantly felt, though, that if I didn't do everything with like perfect efficiency, that Amazon would crush me. Like a weird, weird um, thought that I was racing against this giant, which at the time, like 2008, wasn't like Amazon wasn't even nearly as big as it is now. And yet I had this gigantic concern, like that I had to be the ultimate efficient operation. So I really uh, didn't allow like the growth I was having to be a good answer for me. So I kept trying to push the envelope, which I think is healthy. And I think the mindset that a lot of uh, startup founders should have, they shouldn't, you know, think that like they can just be complacent, but I was way too far on the other side of the spectrum and just did all sorts of wacky stuff, which like ran my expenses up. Like I turned it from like something that was purely a website to, I was then drop shipping like nutrition supplements and stuff. And it wasn't even necessarily something I wanted to be doing. And I was still in college and it was just way too much. And despite all the success, it was really successful. It was like paying my rent for a while. I just eventually completely burned out and had to like just stop working on it all together. And then I took on other interests. I graduated college. I did some other stuff for a little while. What lessons did you learn from that that helped you when it came time to grow your Twitter following for the practical dev? Yeah, I really looked back and realized that had I just kept things simple, I would have been gigantic by now. And I, it wouldn't have mattered whether, uh, whether Amazon you know, was going to crush certain parts of that industry and stuff because none of my, like, none of the other competitors were doing anything particularly more interesting. Had I just kept a growth mindset with uh, a little more patience, everything about that business would have remained valuable for years and years and years and years and years had I really stuck with it and cared about it. And so the lesson there was that, like, nobody out there is doing anything that much more interesting than you. Even the biggest, most gigantic companies in the world. So unless you're trying to do something like create a new smartphone or something, you really, uh, you'd be surprised how much value you can bring just by improving sort of the little things you're trying at. I think, uh, I think if people even tried some, some like truly daunting things like creating their own search engine, I think they could, as long as they knew that they're not trying to rebuild Google, they're trying to solve a problem that Google's actually kind of missing out on in a small subset of the world. And if you're able to have some kind of realistic expectations about the size and the long-term wins, like the uh, really 
you have no reason to give up on something. You just need to sort of have constraints so it doesn't grow too in too many weird directions. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, ultimately most businesses fail because the founders quit. And yeah, there's all sorts of external reasons. You know, it's hard to grow, you're running into issues, you're running low on money. But ultimately, unless you quit, your business is still going. And so that persistence is really key. And it's hard to have that persistence if you have unrealistic expectations, if you're burning yourself out, if you're trying to move too fast. And so anything that you can do to help yourself keep going really pays dividends in the long run. And I think it shows with your Twitter account as well. When you're getting this community off the ground, you gave yourself years to work on it. And for the whole first year, you were just sort of posting links and not taking it super seriously. How did you transition from that into growing this thing to the massive size that it is today? Yeah, so at a certain point, I made a realization that there was uh, enough total attention there that I could justify devoting my time to it. I'm really sort of economically minded in a funny way in that sense, like partitioning my time more so than uh, really strategizing too much. So I just thought that there was enough total value being captured with that crowd that it was worth the time commitment. So I started thinking harder about what software developers were really looking for on Twitter, uh, what answers they were trying to come to, what was really, you know, burning at them, because I knew this was a becoming a microphone that I could use. At this point, it was about 10 or 12,000 followers, which seemed like uh, an unbelievable success at that point, because, you know, I'd been sort of delivering value, like I just had a mechanic that was working. But I knew now there was enough there to uh, take the next step and really start uh, being thoughtful about it, a little bit more uh, additive. So I started looking at what was working, kind of creating some custom content a little bit, but also getting into uh, writing jokes and stuff. And that's really when it started uh, really hockey sticking in terms of the Twitter account. I started creating just different kind of jokes. It was all original material. I really wasn't trying to be another uh, joke thief, which I felt like most uh, any humorous Twitter accounts really were. They were just reposting stuff from the rest of the web, which really, uh, really bites at me. So I started creating uh, parody O'Reilly book covers, which were a real smash hit in the industry. And that's really when when it started to become a lot of fun and, and an incredible amount of growth. Yeah, I've seen some of those tweets where you take these O'Reilly programming book covers and then you like remove the text and you put in something funny. And what's cool about it is I think most people on Twitter are just posting this sort of self-interested material. They're like, here's a link to my website. Here's an update about something that I'm working on. And most people don't really care that much about it. But when you're tweeting really funny jokes that everybody can enjoy and appreciate and retweet, and when you're tweeting really practical advice that everybody can share with their friends and say, this is really awesome, then I think that unlocks you know, the ability for you actually to grow and build an audience. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of like empathy. Like what do people want when they look at their phone and what might people, what make, what might make people feel more connected with their uh, fellow, fellow practitioners of this uh, very complicated field we're in. And this type of humor really does bring people together. It really makes them realize that they're not the only one going through some of these hilarious pains or operating via hacks and just uh, just trying their best to do things right. And people really, really appreciate that. And, and it was uh, a really big smash hit. 
What are some of the things you learned while doing this besides the fact that these jokes could be super effective? Were there things that you tried to grow your audience that didn't work, perhaps? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I tried all sorts of stuff that didn't work and really tried to pay attention to what did and didn't. Along the way, I really had a real strong opinion without any actual evidence, though, that if I used Twitter itself and not like TweetDeck or some non-native platform, I'd have a much better feel for what people needed in the moment. This is a funny little sort of feeling thing. It's hard to justify this. And now I have like coworkers and I kind of have to like still just like tell them I don't really want to schedule things. I'd rather tweet it now. There's just, just like a just like being native to the community, being one with the platform, understanding the understanding people's genuine like feelings about things and paying attention to the vibe in the room, even if the room is the whole world. And the outcomes from doing that, I think, really go a long way. So it was so much more about the input I was receiving than the output. So I spent so much time just observing what people were caring about, what people were joking about, what people were concerned about, nervous about, what people thought were the stupidest things in the world. And I was kind of reflecting a lot of that back into the universe as much as I could. And that felt like what I was the thing that I was giving back was people's own kind of deepest feelings and concerns about their, uh, their careers and their craft. Listening to what you're saying, a lot of your success really just comes down to the fact that you spent almost all of your time focused on this singular thing. You weren't building a Twitter community you know, on the side of some bigger project that you were working on. That was your project. I think most people, when they go to build an audience, when they go to work on some sort of marketing channel, it's kind of a thing they can't devote that much time to. And so they don't really take as much time to listen to what the community there really cares about or really feel like one of the people that they're sort of talking to. And so you know, the result is they don't produce that great of content, their tweets aren't that interesting, and they find it very hard to grow. At what point in time did you decide to take this Twitter following that you've built and use it to build a community elsewhere? Yeah, it was a tough choice because we kind of did become a lot worse at Twitter when we did that. So, it, you know, I am only one person. I don't try to do everything. So I kind of stopped being such a presence on Twitter. Like we sort of started doing other things. And, um, you know, to this day, we don't really have as great a presence on Twitter. But I thought, um, actually, more through feedback, I started realizing more and more people were excited about some of the other things we were doing. Like I started the website itself kind of as another experiment. Um, I knew I didn't want to just be a Twitter account, not just a joke account as well. So I knew uh, I wanted some kind of evolution, even if people really, really loved the uh, the Twitter. And so that was another just experiment in understanding what people needed, what they were looking for, and also, you know, telling them what I thought they might need and sort of getting some feedback and stuff like that. So the website, which was named dev.to because that seemed like uh, I really like short domain names. I was really trying to center on this dev kind of content. And I also thought, you know, the practical dev, uh, yeah, just it 
wasn't the uh wasn't as slick as I wanted it to be and dev's kind of weird but it's it works and it's been uh it's been fun and so it started out a little bit more like just a sort of publication as i mentioned like i didn't have even though i had all these twitter followers at this point not as many as we have now but like a ton you know enough to really feel like we had momentum i still didn't Knowing the universe, I still didn't think people would just start using another platform as a community. It's hard enough to get your friends and family to use your new thing, let alone like enough people to actually build a network and and that sort of thing. So I really took my time with that, tried to understand ways we could deliver value, tried to just put things in front of people in ways they would really appreciate and not try to tell them they needed to sign up for anything, not try to tell them they needed to be part of our network in a different way. It just like trying to kind of give them more things to chew on, help more people. And it was actually when I started to realize that some people really love the platform 10 times more than they love the Twitter account. As much as the Twitter account was popular, the platform really became capable of touching people in really personal ways. Really, people felt like when we started letting other people post, they really felt like we were uplifting them, like we were giving them a voice. And it was awesome. Just like hearing that back just a few times and feeling like we were a positive force in the universe just by putting our values out there, just by standing up for the types of software developers that do not necessarily always sort of find their in crowd so easily. And, uh, just by doing the stuff we thought was the best thing for software, people really, really took to it in a really strong way. And, um, you know, even the platform itself is not really the abstraction we're looking for. It's that feeling of, of inclusiveness. And it's, yeah, just continuing to follow the, the feedback and follow the awesomeness without getting too caught up in, in the numbers and, and things like that has, has consistently been the way to go. I want to dive into some of these details behind your early community and really get into your head and what things were like for you back then. Communities obviously have existed since the dawn of time. Communities have been online since the beginning of the internet too. But you're not only building the community, you're building the actual software, the platform that the community uses to communicate. And I think that's pretty rare. Most people just use an existing platform if they're going to build a community. So they'll use Twitter like you did at first, or they'll start a Facebook group or a WhatsApp group or a Slack channel or something. What did the early Dev2 website look like? And what were some of the decisions that you made and how you could structure your community? Because the fact that you're building it from scratch by yourself means that you have no constraints. It can look like anything you want it to. Yeah, so early on, the reason for building it fairly from scratch, and you know, the phrase from scratch really means a lot of different things. In software, you can pick any sort of layer of abstraction. But we built from scratch from like a software frameworks that made doing this sort of thing easy enough. But uh, I really had the thought that if we want to do this right, we need to get our hands dirty. If this is going to be our core competency, like this platform, like whatever it becomes, we should have our hands in the clay and be able to make it anything we wanted. That being said, I tried to make it valuable right away. And what I had been doing was sharing links from all over the web. So I started off by making the platform sort of look a lot like Medium, which was a platform I noticed pe- programmers were really taking to. It was the, besides people's individual blogs, Medium was definitely the, the winner in terms of shared space and shared platform. 
But I thought, you know, Medium, for all its goodness of bringing a network together and, you know, giving you notifications you might care about and sharing stuff, really was not the best reading experience, especially for software developers. And I had the thought that they're never going to get better for software developers. Their core abstraction is publication and software development is the smallest use case they have. Like for all the software developers publishing on Medium, there's probably a thousand times more traffic coming to general purpose sort of news and commentary and stuff like that. So right. I thought no, you know, innovator's dilemma, Medium just cannot become a great software publishing platform. And it's still big and great, but um, I think some of the success in that hypothesis is really, uh, is really coming to fruition. And software uh, developers should have a custom solution, even if that custom solution isn't all that custom right away. It's just the, the idea that it can become a custom solution, become the ideal space for specifically sharing software development and if we were going to do that, the best thing to do is write it all from scratch. I've always been confused why people think that, quote, reinventing the wheel is kind of a bad thing in software because you're basically, what you're doing is getting up to speed with your own code and having a platform to build in any direction you want in the future. We probably could have gotten V1 up in WordPress in one day, but then we'd be stuck on WordPress's abstractions for the rest of the universe. And, yeah, exactly. And that is definitely not what we were building. We were building, a, uh, we were building an abstract concept around you know, solving the needs of software developers. And you, you can't do that on someone else's platform unless it's fairly low level. Um, and also, since it was just me working on it, uh, I didn't really have to convince anyone of this. I really got to just get my hands dirty, treat it like a project that didn't have a a high, you know, risk of failure. Like there was really no downside to trying. And I had, at this point, I had a solid nine years left in my plan. So if it took nine years to get this up and running, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So let's talk about some of these specific uh, design choices that you wanted your platform to look like and the reason why you weren't using an existing platform. One of them you mentioned is that you wanted the reading and the writing experience to be specifically tailored to developers. And other larger blogging platforms like Medium were never going to do that. They had to be general purpose. What are some other goals that you had in mind for the Dev2 platform? Yeah, so a big goal, I thought, like as a general thing that would ultimately bring value, even if some of the marketing efforts or something were failures, was delivering a platform that was extremely high performance. So being very, very performance conscious because I observed as a software developer that the web was extremely slow and bulky, even in its best forms. Some some websites are just brutal and have been bogged down by ads and by heavy JavaScript frameworks and it doesn't take that much to have a fast website. It's just actually avoiding putting the things that make it slow in there. And uh, so right off the bat, I just thought like if we could ship this whole thing in fewer bytes and 
you know, actually pay attention to best practices. It felt like the the best practices were out there, but nobody was listening. Everyone is looking for sort of get rich quick schemes in terms of performance instead of actually going down to the basics and and understanding that like the laws of physics have some constraints like the speed of light. And I, if I'm going to get you a whole experience quickly, uh, I'm going to have to pay attention to some of those things. And, you know, also the idea of shipping a page where you read words on it um, really is not so complicated that you need to bog it down with a lot of heavy programming. Uh, so it was really an effort in minimalism, an effort in defining some really simple constraints that we still stick to today and just being what we thought the ideal citizen of the web is. And some of that is just best practices. Some of that is is hacks because the web itself is not a perfect uh, platform. And just sort of having that as a true hypothesis, like in terms of user experience, I thought, uh, you know, that idea of like what a blog post should look like besides what I thought maybe a specific programming platform could do better is still pretty simple and can be done in a really performant way. And that was, that was a a huge deal. And I also thought if any group of people in the whole universe would actually pay attention to that and, you know, actively notice how fast it was, it was the software development community you know, it might not be worth it to make those optimizations if your community isn't going to appreciate or care about it. But I knew that this group would, and that was a lot of fun doing. I learned a lot, a lot in making that kind of the core technical objective. So I assume in the beginning it was you writing all of the content for Dev2. How did you open things up and get it so that other people were helping you contribute to the articles and the blog posts that you could find on the website? Yeah, I just kind of gradually started trying to make that happen, like one one thing at a time. I tried to kind of make the technical objectives kind of mirror the growth objectives. So I tried, as soon as I thought there was a few people in my in my universe I thought might want to write on it, I, I didn't even build the features in advance of, of getting them involved. I kind of like built, half built all the features needed. And as soon as I thought that there was a few people who might want to jump on board, I just, you know, put scrambled and put together some of those features. Uh, actually, looking back, a lot of the earliest accounts have like major bugs on them that just, you know, like if those people haven't come back and fixed up their accounts, they're kind of broken. So those first those first days were, were a real shit show in that regard. But I didn't want to write a ton of new stuff before anyone was using it. So it was a real sort of give and take between uh, anyone who was showing up to write a few things here and there and then do the things that I needed to do to sort of let them do that stuff. So I've even looked back on some of those conversations early on and it was really funny. I was just like, mostly I was always telling them, if anything doesn't work, just let me know and I'll fix it. That was kind of my, my instruction that I had to give everyone because even... It was just a basic like blog editor. It's not the most complicated thing in the world, but bug-free code in any regard is really hard to do. And that's why people tell you not to reinvent the wheel because it is hard. But over time, we really ironed a lot of stuff out. What were these people writing about and where were they coming from? Are these people that were following you on Twitter and you were saying, hey, come to our website and write an article? Or were they friends of yours? How did you find these people? Um, yeah, it was sort of like, I sort of took... To, it was mostly internet friends, not a lot of people in my direct life. 
even knew about the project necessarily. It was kind of, uh, I sort of have this sort of thing where I don't really tell anyone what I'm working on unless I have teammates involved, um, just because I saw a TED talk about this like forever ago and it really stuck with me that you can kind of, you should sort of keep some of your stuff secret so you don't get the satisfaction of telling people before it's done. So I didn't really have a lot of personal connections who really were deeply involved in in it, but I had, you know, folks who followed the account, which I felt were a lot closer to me and would maybe reach out through DMs a little bit more. And I remember, I think the first person in that regard was uh, someone named Jennifer Konikowski, who I'd never met in real life, but she, uh, she just DM'd me like asking if I could like share something um, on the, on the Twitter. And I thought it, I thought it was like the perfect opportunity to say, Hey, can you just actually repost this on dev two? And it was, uh, yeah. And then my next sentence was like, let me know if anything's wrong, like I'll fix it. <laughs> and I think she was the first ever publisher besides me. And one other person who so like account kind of got broken and it's kind of hard to even track down at this point. But um, yeah, it just kind of happened. And I just played it as, as calmly as I could, like trying to pretend it wasn't like the first, like, I don't think she noticed that like no one had ever done this before. <laughs> I just kind of made it seem like it was a thing. And, and, you know, I, I knew that if she said, no, nah, nah, I don't really feel like it, somebody else would come along and, and, and uh, be interested. And I, I just had this thought that like at this point I had eight and a half years left. And if I had a few more of these over time, I th- thought that the platform would eventually kind of take off. How do you get people to write interesting, good content for your community? Because I think anyone who's running a community is well aware of this quality control problem where there might be some people who their interests are sort of aligned with what you want the community to do and they're contributing great things. And other people are just writing whatever they want and the quality bar is not that high how do you make sure in the early days of Dev2 that the articles you were posting were good and how has that sort of evolved over time? Yeah, so early on the quality bar really wasn't that high and I didn't even really say yes or no. I just said yes and yes. I just took everything I could get and I didn't share everything on Twitter and that was really the like differentiation. There was kind of a ranking factor from from day one because I had a feeling like nobody was really coming to the site directly anyway. So... I could just kind of let everything in. And if there was some stuff that was just kind of crappy writing, as long as it wasn't violating the code of conduct, it was um, it was fine. Like if you had the wrong idea about JavaScript, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, we did select through it ourselves. But we also kind of just let things through we weren't sure about as long as they the author was making a pretty good attempt because we just wanted everyone to be having fun. And what happened is we got surprised consistently about like what was interesting to people, what was really taking off and stuff. Um, but we didn't just let it sort of grow wild. We, we tried to really guide people through just leadership in our own content. So we'd write in the kind of style we hoped other people would do. And it really did sort of work that way. Like the people really copy other people. Um, even if they don't realize it, they like, they adopt something that isn't a rule as kind of the rule, like the guideline. So you know, um, I started signing my uh, posts with the phrase happy coding. And I noticed like immediately so many other people started doing that. Um, and it's really funny, like the people look up to other people and you kind of think you have no idea what you're doing and you're just kind of like being yourself and doing your best. But then other people are looking to you for guidance and just an aware, a sense of awareness that people were doing that and trying to work to that and 
have a monkey see, monkey do mindset and knowing that people would really, you know, act the right way we wanted them to if we just set a good example. And we uh, really took, uh, took it from there. One of the things you've told me before we started this interview was that in the past, you've done the whole startup treadmill thing where it's an endless effort month after month trying to show traction and growth to your investors or to yourself. And I can get exhausting. How have things been growing Dev2? You know, how, how hard has it been to actually increase the number of people who were members of your community? And what are some of the phases you've gone through? Yeah, so of course it's been easier with less pressure with that 10-year plan. But the actual mechanics haven't been that much easier. And what we did was just take a lot of time early on to get it right. But then also we became a company. Like uh, there was a point where I had another full-time startup I was working with and I was a, I was the technical co-founder of a different company and I was loyal to both things. And that's kind of long, that's like history at this point, but that was a big thing. And we wound up... Um, actually turning this into a company by taking in the the um the founder of the other company as the third founder so it's myself Jess Lee and Peter Frank now and that's a whole different story but at this point we decided like we Jess and I were burning ourselves out doing this as a side project and still being devoted to our respective companies and so we had to do something different we had to kind of go full time or let the project die in a sense even though it had a ton of momentum we didn't think that would truly happen but we had a, a feeling it could happen if we didn't go full time. So, so we did a major shift in our whole lives. We got, we sort of recapitalized the whole thing. I had to give up, you know, tons of my equity just to make sure I, we were fair to everybody. So now we're a real startup, and now what we don't want to do is get back on that damn treadmill. So I really think so much of that was just remembering that, like we had a shared understanding in all of our lives that we'd done that before. And it wasn't what we were going to do this time around. So there's just a few times like here and there where we just kind of realize we're getting on the treadmill and we have a deep, long conversation about how to get off of it. And I felt like in the past that was never a thing. It was always so clear that we had to just keep pushing on that never ending death march to try to show numbers, to try to like keep the company live. We'd hire more people to speed up the growth, which would just, you know, make it even harder to reach numbers because we needed to show numbers that could justify all the people we had. And it was incredibly brutal. And we've gotten, you know, some of that back in our in our lives now that we hire a staff and we there's now six total people, including myself and um, Peter and Jess. So there's there's the three of us. And then we have three uh employees who earn real salaries and stuff. And uh, so there's a ton of pressure, but we have consistently stayed ahead of that treadmill kind of mindset to the best we can and much, much more so than we ever had before in our professional lives. So it's just been a, I don't know, a lot of communication. Myself, Jess and Peter have a lot of meetings where we really just try to, you know, get back to basics, like focus on communication, drop projects we don't care about, even though we seem to always pick up 10 more that we do care about. You know, there's no silver bullet, but a, you know, a shared principled understanding that we don't not want to be doing that again is, is a big one. So 
we have to finance the project in several different ways and we make it all work and we're, you know, constantly kind of approaching new different ways to do it. And, you know, we also give up on things that don't seem to be working at the time. So we don't get so convinced that like we had this idea, this is how we're going to make all our money. And uh, if it doesn't work, we don't know what we're doing. So we, we remain pretty experimental. We remain pretty opportunistic. And we haven't hired someone new in about six months, which is great. It's It's been no new costs. And it's we've really been able to grow a lot in that time span and stuff. So we just... Uh, have a more principled approach at this point. We're not trying to play the game the way, you know, some TechCrunch article tells us to. We're trying to play the game our way. So let's talk about how you've been funding your business and paying to hire people. What are your revenue streams and how how are you able to turn this into a real business? Yeah, so our only real strong, substantial, gigantic revenue stream right now is a monthly sponsorship we do with a few companies. So they put their logos on the sidebar. We give them a shout out at the beginning of the month. And sort of that's about it. And we've been able to make that work because we have what we think of as a ton of unsold inventory, a lot of brand respect and a lot of attention on the platform. And we're able to kind of make it work with with organizations. And that's been been really great. It's not really what we think our 100% long-term solution is, but It's also not just some dumb advertising model. It's a little bit of a sort of respectful in-between that really helps a lot of different parties by sort of letting people know what's available, who our friends are, what's good out there, while also staying true to our ultimate vision, which is, I think, a little more complicated. I think it takes a lot longer to make your revenue the way you want to do it when you're also just growing a really big community that's so abstract and everyone has different values and we really don't want to do wrong on the software community. So, so we've been pretty like slow and careful there and just trying to make good friends and, um, and grow our revenues that way. How did you find your first sponsors? Cause I know it's, it's tough when you've got a website, you're not making any money and you have to make those first calls or send those emails. You don't really have a process for doing it. So what did it look like in the beginning and how has that process changed? Yeah. I just say we try to sort of back channel and find the right connections and stuff. It's uh, it's definitely always just sort of a work in progress. As I mentioned, it's also not a, it's not like the type of business we care to be the best in the world at absolutely is in terms of sponsor relationships. So we haven't like scaled out a brilliant process there. We've just kind of made it work as we go and, and had a lot of good emails. And, and this is really uh, the awesomeness that I think Peter brings to the business. He really is good at just handling those things and making it work and pulling it together. And every month we we make it work. And we have some, we always kind of have some new things on the on the go. We have a few other ways we make money. We have a kind of like a, a, a simple kind of like pay what you want membership, just that we don't even really advertise. But if people really want to find it, they can. And Ultimately, though, we keep our eyes on the prize in terms of growing the community and find creating actual success stories within the community. People who really feel like they've found their people, found new jobs, even, you know, through connections made on the site and stuff like that. Like all these like really natural things, which which I think we'll focus more of the business, I think, around these like real key success stories people are achieving, but not in a way that we want to, you know, hurry to do overnight. We're really trying to... Um, find the ways that people uh, people really, you know, 
find the most satisfaction and success on the site. And, uh, and the monetization really is a somewhat secondary thing, but we haven't like gone out and raised a bajillion dollars. So we have to really, you know, be disciplined about that as well. So a little bit of, of both those kind of things. So you've got a million and a half different people coming to your website every month. That number is humongous. Getting there requires sort of a windy path. It's very rare that you can just find one way to grow, you know, your Twitter account or search traffic, and that just lasts you forever. What are some of the different phases you've been through with growing Dev2 and what kinds of things have you tried that worked and what kinds of things have you tried that didn't work quite as well? Yeah, so it really is the kind of thing that we established some good distribution channels early on with Twitter and, and elsewhere, you know, even just natural stuff like uh, people posting to other platforms like Reddit. Although Reddit's like consistently banned our, our website for some reason. So we, ha- we established that. We kind of knew, you know, this is the same thing other people are doing. The distribution channels aren't the most complicated part, even though we, we built up one, one good one on Twitter. But the bottleneck is, is that people can do anything in the world with their time. And why the hell would they write on your stupid platform? And so we just sort of examined, you know, what writing on the platform really meant, what the kind of partnership we were making with people was really being like super duper respectful of that, being really explicit that like, you know, we welcome the idea that you can maybe own your own content and just cross post it to our site. So we encourage people to, who had already kind of just written something on their own website to just cross post it. And we, early on, we said, hell, we'll even just do it for you. (laughs) Just sign up for your account and we will make this post happen on our site and you'll reach a lot more people. It'll be fun. There might be a conversation. And we didn't try to like convince people of the deeper values behind posting. We really just tried to make it easy for them. And this, this idea that, cross-posting is a perfectly okay um, and even encouraged use case or pattern people are using really, I think, was a big inflection point in terms of our growth where we didn't think like every single thing needed to be, you know, unique to the platform because, you know, people write like I originally wrote this on my blog here, I'm sharing it here. That's actually great. That was actually like a, it's a really nice way to use the site. And it just becoming really good at knowing, you know, that sort of thing and um, consistently trying to offer a product which fit the needs of people at the time and stuff like that. So there was the phase where we were really early just trying to kind of experiment with anything. And then there was sort of a growth phase where we really honed in on consistently being able to out- reach out to people and ask them to take part in our our little game we were playing with uh, with this community and then there was sort of the phase where that was working and we actually just needed to keep scaling the platform mechanics so that people were getting enough of the good stuff and not too much of the bad stuff. And that the bad stuff wasn't really considered bad unless it was like really bad and harassment and stuff like that. So we had a lot of like, we have a lot of acceptance of, you know, people attempting to write like um, interesting stuff, but it's just a long term effort in really thinking through these problems over and over again and never thinking you've solved it once and for all. Yeah, it's, that's all really interesting. Like, I want to talk about so much of that. How do you reach out to people and get them to write for your platform? Are these people who are you know, really accomplished in the world of programming, you think they could write a great article? Or are these people who've already written things, you just want them to cross-post to Dev2? Yeah, so we really focused on just people who had already written things that were 
that we could vet as interesting ourselves because it's right there in front of us. And we just would reach out in a very um, polite way through public channels they'd provided us and said, um, hey, I think our community would find this really valuable as well. Uh, would you be interested in cross-posting it? Um, let me know. I can uh, give you a hand. And and that was that. Was that. But we've also completely stopped doing that altogether. <laughs> like, we did that for uh, until it became less necessary. And now we have such a great thriving community that every day it's, it's just a matter of, uh, of moderation and growth and continuing to improve the features and, and stuff like that. Cause you know, our homepage, uh, we have a, the very top posts are the very top post is, um, is basically determined by us, but the rest is all an algorithm. And that's, just kind of how we roll and we have developed a platform that like really fits our needs and that goes back to doing it from scratch like we built all our own anti-harassment sort of software and and because that was like our core competency we wanted people to have a decent time and we consistently have to keep working on that but we took that as our as something we cared about from day one instead of realizing like two years later that, oh my God, we've created a cesspool. Like I think a lot of other platforms <laughs> do. We really focused really hard on, uh, on, you know, people being treated well and therefore wanting to hang out and talk about code. So the effort continues. That actually is becoming more and more important now that we doesn't, we have a steady flow of content. It's not really so much about that kind of mechanic. It's, it's really about um, being true to our values and wearing them on our sleeves and, you know, not letting people be total assholes to one another, but also letting them be creative and funny and silly and stuff like that. So it's it's all just it's a it's all just a matter of uh, the day to day, like really caring about this stuff. What are some things that you believe to be true during the course of running Dev Two, but that you ended up being wrong about? Early on, I was really fairly obsessed with grammar, and I mean, not for like overly obsessive, but I really thought it was really important to have really strong editing for every post. And uh, ultimately, that's important enough. Like, you want to kind of make sure people are not totally disregarding um, their writing quality. But largely, people don't seem to care much about that. So that was kind of a realization. Um, Early on, I remember, like, going through edits with people. And that just, I stopped doing that because it was just so much time to do. And then realized, like, at no point was it ever a big problem. So... There was that. Uh, it was just kind of a little thing, but it was all about sort of time commitments as I was working on it on my own. I had a lot of things that I'm glad I never did, and I'm glad I really stuck to certain constraints. Um, for a while, I thought the economics would be so good that I could, you know, maybe pay for certain growth like areas. I never actually did any of that, and I'm glad I didn't because I think um, forcing myself to do it all very naturally would be uh, really, really turned out way better. Even if some of the economics do work out like that, forcing yourself through the need to automate things and grow like as a one single person working on something and then just two people working on something and things like that, those constraints were phenomenally important. So like we have a lot of great automation in the back end. And I think that's because we never thought we could just hire two people to do this job. Give me an example of some of those automated things you've got going on. 
At this point, it seems like it's fairly typical stuff. I'd say it's more early on. I would just write a lot of scripts for myself to gather sort of information I needed and stuff like that. So like when I was just tweeting out articles early on in the days, uh, I could have kind of done some of that manually, but I, I did a, I sort of made, just made my own link gathering script that I could then parse through just on my computer. And it really was fairly simple and straightforward. And I didn't need to do it because I could have just opened up a bunch of tabs, but that, you know, spending an hour writing that script, like made the whole thing, like, I don't know if I would have kept up the project if I didn't have like a document sitting waiting for me when I needed it and had to like run through all these different platforms looking every time myself, which I think uh, people are a little slow to do sometimes. Or, you know, obviously, if they don't have the software skills, they um, aren't really capable of doing. But little things like that have been really big. And then otherwise, like, you know, recently, we've, we always put a lot of care into, um, into support, into just sort of answering people's questions, fixing their account issues when things break and stuff like that. So we have really been putting a lot of effort into providing great support, but limiting the number of hours we have to put into it. So just like getting to bugs that cause more support issues as like a really important objective, getting to sort of creating features that even create fewer support issues. Just like, even if we think a feature is the best in the world, uh, if it causes way too many incoming support issues, we're going to consider, you know, scrapping it. And we also have our own custom support backend instead of like a Zendesk because um, it's kind of maybe silly and I'm not sure it's the right idea, but we are able to kind of see the whole context right within our app. And if we ever need to change something to make it like one fewer click or just slightly more efficient because we're doing the same thing over and over again, we're not beholden to other people's interfaces and, and ways of doing things because we could actually do this whole chunk of type of support tickets as like single buttons instead of like, instead of like whole workflows and stuff like that. So we just pay a lot of attention to that. And as a company, we know like if we do those things well, we are going to be successful. And I mentioned earlier that I kind of can sometimes obsess over those things. And I don't think I'm nearly like that as much as I used to be. But, you know, it still kind of comes through. So it's a little bit of, uh, of you know, the just the right amount. You mentioned earlier when we were talking that you've had this sort of explosion of growth since the end of the spring. What do you think went into that? Why did that happen? And have there been other times in the past where growth has been maybe stalled and you had to figure out a way out of it? Yeah, growth has always been consistent, but like difficult, like never did we seem like we were really flowing like we are now. And we are incredibly paranoid that this is just a temporary thing. So we, and uh, we always need to keep kind of working on it. But these days, a few things have happened. It's just like the consistent work we put in, in terms of, you know, the ideas behind network driven things, like where every new person enhances the value for everyone else. They're supposed to kind of pick up speed and momentum and get better and better and better. And, uh, and we don't think it's anything new. It's, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of 
you know, culmination of a lot of great effort in the past, but we've also had just a lot of uh, really good things that have happened um, in terms of just encouragement from big people in the community, like just opportunities have come up and we've really stuck to just working hard. But we also, I mean, the reason things in August are doing so well is just last week we uh, we went open source with the whole um, code base, which... Yeah, I saw that. That was crazy. Yeah, and that's another effort in um, in sort of becoming a more efficient organization. Uh, things run much more smoothly when all the code is out there and people have eyes to find help you fix bugs and stuff. We're not out there like looking to for everyone to give us free work and stuff, but a lot of people really genuinely want to you know, contribute as a, as a, just a side project, as just something they're interested in for their own learnings and, and otherwise just kind of fix issues they run into, but also like open source is like the greatest thing in the world. And, you know, in, in, in our sort of tiny little software universe we're kind of talking about, but the goodwill that, you know, came from that, it's just like, we're sharing our code with the whole community. We're, we're really, you know, showing some of that transparency. We've really we've really been going for from day one in terms of um, just putting our principles out on our sleeves and like really like showing our values and stuff. And, uh, and this was just a huge, huge amount of momentum. So like, you know, if we're growing 15 to 20% every month, that's like a, that's a harder number to hit every month. So like, you know, this month we have like 250,000 new people who didn't visit last month. Like that's a lot of people. And, it's just been, yeah, like pretty great. And we think the the things we're doing with open source are some of the, you know, it's new and we're not like, you know, doing it all right now yet. But I think we're, we've got some of the more interesting, like innovative ideas that are in open source, just in terms of the long-term sort of feedback cycles you can create in terms of people contributing back to projects they actually use and stuff like that. So we're, um, you know, we really think like I'm, frankly blown away by the whole thing like we were number one on github for the whole week and i don't know how much that number matters like stars on github and stuff but like if you're gonna measure anything like being number one is the best place to be <laughs> like on the whole on the whole <laughs> website it's a pretty massive uh pretty massive platform so uh we are like blown away by some of the goodwill and success and some of the messages we get about like how this platform is really uh just changing people's lives. And then, you know, some people, it's just kind of the lame, this lame software website that doesn't really have content they love or stuff like that. You know, like nobody, it doesn't touch everyone the same way, but the, um, the, the growth has, yeah, just been crazy. And it's just been a culmination of a lot of hard work, plus like a really, a few great opportunistic ideas that, that my team has like done such a great job of buying into and really working towards we really had to basically feature freeze for a while to get this open source thing happening just to make sure we were, um, you know, crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's in terms of security measures and stuff like that. And uh, it took a lot of buy-in from the whole team to think that was a good idea. And I'm just super proud of everybody who uh, is working on this project, both within our company and the whole community. It's been, uh, it's been fairly magical. What does the future look like for Dev2 and where do you go from here? Yeah, so we're going to continue to stress like crazy that we are 
really being a community in every sense of the word, really scaling these things right, not taking for granted that at this scale something works and at 10 times the scale it won't work. Like we really, we're really trying to stay ahead of things and do things better than some of these other um, environments, which just become toxic or unhelpful. And we really think that's the way to provide the most valuable environment for programmers of all experience levels, all backgrounds. The best environment is one with professional attitudes and stuff like that. And we are leaning like crazy into these ideas while also we plan on evolving our uh, business strategy. I think we want to become a less, less solely beholden to, um, these sponsorship relationships, which I think we've kept really healthy, but we just don't want this to be like our true scalable business. Um, and so we've got some ideas. We may be uh, raising some money at some point um, just to make this happen. Not like some massive Series A or anything, just uh, just a little bit of wiggle room to maybe hire one or two more people. And I'm really glad we put that off because uh, we are in a great position to just do everything in a really healthy way and just find some like true true partners along those lines. So the, the future I think is, is pretty bright, but it's a lot, it's a lot more of the same and a lot more of just like being 10 times better at the things we already are kind of good at, as opposed to trying to capture like 10 more things to be good at. We're going to try to just be better at the things we're already like trying to be good at. You know, one thing I'm curious about is what it actually looks like to be working on a site like this. How much of your time and how much of the people that you're working with of their time, do you spend just sort of maintaining the status quo, moderating posts, keeping the site running? And how much, you know, what percentage of your time do you spend on sort of growth tasks and doing things that push the site forward and, and take you to the next level? Yeah, I would say we don't focus on growth very much, especially these days. So I'm constantly kind of having to like, you know, recreate some like pretty weird hypotheses with my co-founders and stuff like that. And they're kind of like bringing the same to me about just like what is important for us. And we really don't feel like this whole thing is going to grow because we have like, you know, the perfect kind of like call to action to sign up or anything like that, like, um, or any sort of really great marketing pushes or anything um, that would sort of go into maybe some growth hack mechanics we really focus on uh, on you know success of people sort of feeling like they belong and feeling like they've contributed and the community um, has responded grace graciously. So when we think about growth, it's like how many people who are already on the platform and maybe just kind of hanging out at this point can we turn into like just lifetime fans and to do so for all the right reasons. So not tricking them into uh, becoming part of some loyalty program or anything, but just just making them feel so welcome by the broader programming community that they wouldn't want to sort of go anywhere else and that their their needs are being taken care of, but we also aren't saying you can't you can't spend other time elsewhere. So just being like welcoming, trying not to be too walled garden-y, trying to play well with the other platforms that we work with in a sense, like people sharing things on Twitter. Like, so Twitter is, you know, kind of our de facto partner in a sense, like we're on GitHub as a code, as a code community. So just trying not to be too much of like everything for everyone, but everyone within our community in terms of like 
you know, sharing those ideas, getting feedback, like just expressing sort of thanks for the community for any way. Like if we can create more success stories like that, that's kind of how we win. And, uh, and that's just little sort of like mechanical stuff, little words here and there. Like we try to softly give people guidance in terms of being better community members and stuff like that. And we really empower like the top 5% of, of contributors to really feed the cycle of, of just happy, healthy software development ecosystems. And, uh, and that's kind of where any future growth will come from. So we don't really think growth all that much, uh, in the past, maybe we have a little bit, but these days it's all just about the like fundamental principles of the goodness we're bringing to the world, which is really a great, exciting thing to be having meetings about. Yeah. I, I love that. I don't have to like push back against ideas because I'm the only one holding some of these values. Like I really like the whole team and the whole greater community is, is sharing and holding these values with us. So like, we know we can't do the wrong thing because the community is, is, has this shared understanding that we're going to be doing some of the right things. And, uh, and we also have a shared understanding that we're a business. We have a shared understanding that whatever choices we make, we're going to do with it for the, the, good of the whole community and the growth of this platform and how much, you know, we, the founders really care about it. And so that's really the day to day. It's kind of like just a lot of, of little things that, and none of it really is, is super growth focused except for new features, which can, you know, make people's experience better. And, and frankly, like I couldn't imagine a better, healthier way to grow something. I'm really just curious about like the amount of effort it takes to keep dev running. If you aren't going to do any sort of major new initiatives, if you aren't going to open source anything, if you aren't going to add new features or fix any bugs, if you just wanted the site to keep going as it is without any changes, how much time would that take? How much manpower would that require? Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I could do it myself. Like honestly, like uh, it's a pretty scalable thing. We have a pretty small team and I think if Unless, unless I, if if this universe was such that I couldn't build um, support automation, then or fix bugs that <laughs> cause support issues, uh, then it would take more people. But the overall operation of the whole thing at this stage is is pretty uh, pretty low maintenance. Besides trying to make it better and stuff, and knowing that we won't reach, we don't have the features for bigger scale and and new things we want to do, but. Yeah, in the theoretical universe where it was um, just growing on its own with no new features or no major initiatives or anything, um, yeah, I, could, I think I could pretty safely do it myself, which is pretty interesting to think about. Yeah, that's really awesome. You mentioned earlier that you know you want people who come to Dev to to have a great experience, and you want as many of them as possible to have a great experience. And this is one of the things that's tricky with the online community because. Your homepage can only show so many articles. You know, every page in your site can only really show so much content. How do you strike a balance between getting more people to contribute more to Dev2 and also ensuring that people actually have the things that they write read by other people who come to the site? Yeah, so we don't, um, to some extent we have this, but um, much less so than other sites. We don't have a strongly like super heavily optimized like winner loser dynamic in terms of the posts i think we try to kind of mix things up like show posts that show every sort of give every post like a little bit of a chance to to breathe and to live and to sort of stick around on the new post page for a little while so 
I think most kind of efforts get their fun in the sun and we don't create these threads with like a bajillion comments. We really kind of more keep it like uh, more threads with five or 10 comments. We even have like certain types of tags, actually, like the rules are kind of built so that like, actually, once a few people have talked about this, it kind of sinks. And those are just kind of the technical details of some sort of how the site runs. And I'm surprised. I think a lot of sites just take for granted the idea that like everything should be sort of winner take all and stuff like that. And I really feel like early on, and we don't get everything perfect, but we, you know, it was a much more principled approach. Like what's a natural way for people to try to kind of get the help they need, like have the conversations they want to be having and not every single element needs to like go big. Like the best things don't need to be seen by a bajillion people and the worst things don't need to be never seen by anyone. So uh, really striking, I think, just a little better balance than than some other platforms. Um, and just having the confidence to do that because it's easy to say like, oh, we have to like, the best things have to be the best and stuff. But it's such a feedback cycle. Like the stuff that rises to the top of, of, uh, of some other platforms um, is sort of random. It's kind of like once it got steam, it kept going. But it doesn't mean that thing that got 10 times less upvotes or whatever uh was 10 times worse it just like didn't it didn't totally catch right. on so like so we just tried to um build an ecosystem that reflects the like natural nuance of the real world and sort of like has some uh some variants built in where more people can achieve more success we also really just encourage people to you know express thanks when they've written a post and when they've read a post so like you know if if only 10 people read my post, but one person actually literally thanks me, I'm, I'm like, you know, pretty happy. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need, I don't need 10,000 people to read it necessarily. But, um, if, if, uh, if a hundred people read it and, and, and two or three, like have something kind of positive to say, or, or, you know, anything like that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty great outcome. And, um, I don't think our, community is all optimizing for the most possible views on anything. So we really just try to uh, help people kind of, you know, achieve small wins and feel welcome and feel like they got their stuff out there and they had a good time writing it and stuff like that. There are tons of other online communities and websites where developers and other types of people congregate. What are some things that you've learned from other people? What are some ways that other communities have inspired you and you know, on the flip side, what are some things that you guys are doing that you think other communities are doing wrong? You mentioned, you know, not sort of being obsessed with these network effects and promoting the most popular posts. Are there any other things you guys do differently than the communities you see online? Yeah. So firstly, I'll sort of talk about uh, the things we definitely um, copy. I think we really try to pay attention to what works with some other people, also not try to reinvent the wheel in terms of the the way the interface looks. I think if you go to our site and then you go to a site like Twitter or Facebook or Medium or Product Hunt or your site, there's a lot of shared dynamics there. So we we try to like, you know, copy like good applications and stuff like that. And then we also try to pay attention to, you know, little things other people are doing so well that we're actually jealous of them and and stuff like that and not try to like, you know, play or hate too much on the people doing it really well and just try to learn from everybody. I think the things we do differently, I think we don't quite take for granted some some concepts that have come to be on the internet. 
I really think we take our time on like the lower level mechanics um, much more than I see elsewhere or just kind of have a feeling other people are doing um, where a lot of stuff is really like top down from the interface. And I think like our ideas about the platform haven't changed a lot, um, even if the interface changes from time to time. And sometimes like we'll have a conversation where like, we might change something in the interface, but the conversation we're really having is like, what's the purpose of this? And this is just kind of a feeling I have that like maybe we're taking a different approach than other people. It's hard to say like, I know that this is, we're doing it differently. I really think we've like kind of paid attention to the platform mechanics and like the purpose of different parts of the site and, and wanting to like do features that will have lasting value and good reuse and stuff. And I think some other platforms do this really well, but some definitely really don't. What are some examples? Well, I think uh, I think Facebook was pretty principled and had good ideas early on, but like have just like as a platform completely gone off the rails in terms of features and stuff. Like it's really hard to like, I mean, and just as a company and as a principal, like, the like zero respect for the users at every stage it's it's really like and i'm just even saying that, like i don't really love facebook's like you know overall ethos as a company but even just like from a product management perspective i just feel like they've totally gone off the rails but also like they're so big like i can't say like it's easy i think it's <laughs> we have a hard time just serving a hundred thousand people like they uh they're so much bigger. And so like, there's a lot of respect there, but I, we totally use a lot of that stuff as like a cautionary tale and, you know, without delusions of grandeur, but like, we're definitely trying to, um, you know, just do things a little better than we sort of see elsewhere. And like a consistent, um, a consistent eye towards performance, just like we are built by software developers. We're not like kind of software developers taking orders. So, a continued principled approach to like being good about that because over time we've had to ship more bytes because we have more features and more complicated features right. and like you know we have like web sockets and so like like things that can kind of make a page heavier but we still kind of stick to a pretty reasonable budget and consistently um grow within our means and uh I open up the dev tools on some of these platforms and it is just crazy how much is going on just to serve essentially the same type of page we're serving like there's nothing there's no technical reason they need to be so such resource hogs but it's really tough when you have a lot of different teams like an engineering organization of of 500 people like we have an engineering organization of there's four engineers in our company which i think is seems pretty big but like uh we also you know too, like myself and Jess, um, some weeks we don't even get to code. So sometimes we only have two engineers. And then Andy actually does all the like support stuff, like or not all of it, but he like he leads that all up. So on some days we only have one engineer. I think um, so. Yeah. The uh, we really like you know we can't kind of get off. It's like impossible for us to not be on the same page. Um, and so we haven't gotten into that trap of like just growing and adding like all sorts of random crappy features and all sorts of like different things that don't go together. Like we have like one solid unified code base. We don't have microservices. We, we don't, we kind of have a minimal approach to things, even if we're kind of, if no, no software development is truly like 
uncomplicated, but we uh, we really sort of try as hard as we can to to stay pretty minimal in that sense. Part of how you learn to build your company is through experience, but you can also learn by taking other people's advice and learning from their experiences. What are some things that you've learned from others? And also, what's your advice for other people who might just be started, getting started with their own companies? Yeah, I am certainly a student of like the sort of advice channels out there. You know, I think uh, like Paul Graham's essays are really, really wonderful, even though I like actively disagree with a ton of that stuff. I think it's all really good, good reading material. I I remember one sort of random interview I saw. I wish I could track it down, but it was like back when I was in college. And this has stuck with me forever. And I think it's like really like totally something I've continued to do is that you don't need to, um, the first version of something doesn't need to be all that innovative. You can actually just copy somebody else as your first version with the idea that once you kind of like go through the practice of kind of cloning their thing or kind of just catching up with them, you can, you therefore have the context to kind of grow to something else. And I think a lot of people, for one thing, they expect that they should be innovative or something and, or they, uh, I don't know, they have an assumption that if they like, if they're too generic at the, at the start, they like can't grow to be something more special. And as specific advice, I've like, that's really stuck with me and is exactly what we did with this project. Like, the first version of Dev2 could not have been more uninteresting. <laughs> like there was zero innovation going on besides like, you know, maybe some approaches to like performance, but like it was such a great platform on which to build, like uh, just conquering some of these problems in the most simple way and then growing from there. And uh, the problem is you can't possibly like, pitch someone on your random future idea. Like it's literally like no one would ever believe you if you came up with like a basic clone of Craigslist, but said, Oh no, this is actually the future of the web because I just kind of started here and I'm actually going to like, I'm going to bring people on who are comfortable with the Craigslist interface, but I'm actually going to evolve it to be like, you know, a much more sort of like mobile first kind of like, you know, new experience over time. But my strategy is that, is that people will be, will be very like comfortable interfacing with the Craigslist style thing because they've been doing that for 20 years. And that's really hard to sell people because if you pitch them on the thing you built and it looks like Craigslist, they're going to laugh you out of the room. But I personally think that's like a really great approach. And I think there's so much time wasted on like, just, I don't know, like V0 things that are like a little too innovative and uh, and not serving like the basic needs and like just the boring kind of things that can work early on. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if people have the confidence to come out with something boring and like, and with the own, with their own confidence that it will someday be innovative. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because ultimately a lot of startups are a winding path. It's like a staircase or a stair step approach where what you ultimately want to build doesn't necessarily look like what you first start building. And it's hard for people to, I think, really internalize that. And so they start trying to build their ultimate end goal in the beginning, and that causes all sorts of problems. So I totally agree. Anyway, Ben, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for for joining and sharing your stories and your learnings and your experiences. Can you tell listeners where else they can go to find out more about Dev2 and about what you're working on personally? Yeah, so my personal website is basically Dev2 slash Ben at this point. Um, Everything I 
do in Dev2 land can kind of be found there. There, my Twitter account is uh, Ben D Halpern, and uh, that's where you'll find a lot of uh, you know just sort of like me hanging out with the rest of the developer community and stuff like that. Um, a lot of just you know meta conversations about Dev2 because that's sort of all I care about these days. Um, and no, that's about it. Although I think I want to be spending a little more time on indie hackers, just hanging out. I have an account, and I've uh, I've like played around a little bit, but um, maybe uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll hang out there a little bit more because I think I really would like to. I just kind of haven't uh, haven't really done it enough. And vice versa, I should hang out a little bit more on Dev. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on the show, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.